Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed's doing something no other job site has done. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job description. So visit Indeed.com Peter to start hiring right now. Today, the Federal Reserve announced its decision to raise interest rates by 75 basis points. The Fed funds range now from two and a quarter to two and a half. The 75 basis point rate hike is exactly what the markets were expecting, which is why the Fed delivered a unanimous 75 basis point rate hike because the Fed doesn't like to risk disappointing the markets with some type of surprise. So it played it safe and did exactly what the markets expected. In fact, it played it ultra safe by being unanimous. I mean, I think it's possible that some of those FOMC members may have wanted 100 basis points. Maybe somebody wanted 50. But I think they agreed to coalesce around 75 just to create even more confidence in the Fed. After all, if so many smart people agree that 75 basis points was the right amount, well, then it must be true. But the real important stuff doesn't happen on the official announcement or the statement, but it always happens in the press conference that follows a half hour later. And you know, one of the thing is, we used to get these press conferences only once a quarter. So a lot of times the Fed would make an announcement and we didn't get a conference. Now that changed a few years ago. And now every time the Fed makes a move, we get the press conference that follows. Now in this press conference, one of the more important admissions was Powell basically said that we're at neutral right now at two and a quarter to two and a half, because he later said that the Fed was now data dependent, meaning that they're really not sure what they're going to do in the September meeting. He said it could be an oversized rate hike. I mean, maybe even 100 basis points, although I don't think he said 100 basis points. He just said it could be anything. It could be oversized. He said it could be 25 basis points. He has no idea yet because it depends on the data that comes out between now and September. He said that that is different than it has been in the past while they were on their way to neutral because they really had to get rates up to neutral. So they were kind of on a preset course, almost autopilot. But now that stopped because if they were doing that on the way to neutral and now they stopped, well, it must be because they're at neutral. And the reason it's different now is because they're going beyond neutral into the realm of being moderately restrictive. Now, not overly restrictive because Powell specifically chose to describe the degree to which monetary policy will be restrictive is moderate. Now, if you think about the official inflation rate of 9.1%, meaning unofficially it's probably double that, how are you going to fight that type of inflation, which Powell admitted in his prepared remarks was their number one concern that inflation is too high and the Fed is committed to bringing it back down, 
well, how are you going to tackle such high inflation with just a moderately restrictive policy? After all, we don't have moderate inflation. We have excessive, aggressive inflation, which would require an equally excessive and aggressive restrictive monetary policy to combat it. You're not going to fight this massive inflation with moderation. But the reality is what the Fed is describing isn't moderately restrictive at all. First of all, where we are right now, two and a quarter to two and a half, that can hardly be described as neutral. That was what the Fed thought neutral was when inflation was below 2%. How can that still be neutral when inflation is above 9%? What's neutral with 2% inflation is not neutral with 9% inflation. Maybe 9% interest rates would be neutral when inflation is 9%. Maybe to be moderately restrictive, you'd have to be up to around 10 or 11%. Well, Powell said that moderately restrictive was three to three and a half percent, which is where he hopes, depending on the data, of course, that the Fed funds rate will be by the end of the year. But again, even if inflation comes down from 9% to 6%, and that's a big if, but let's say that happens. And even if the Fed manages to raise the Fed funds rate to 3%, that's still very easy money. That is loose monetary policy. That is accommodative. That is not restrictive or moderate restrictive. In order to get moderately restrictive, again, they've got to bet above the inflation rate. They can't be half the inflation rate. That is still encouraging people to take on debt and punishing people for saving rather than spending. Getting into some of the specific questions that reporters asked. One of the reporters wanted to know about rate cuts in 2023 because the markets are already pricing in rate cuts as early as the first quarter of 2023. So the Fed is going to keep hiking and then the economy is going to weaken and that's going to force the Fed to cut. So Powell was asked to comment on those forecasts and he really didn't directly address the forecast, although he did say in his answer that he expects additional rate hikes in 2023. So that would suggest that Powell disagrees with those investors who believe the Fed will be cutting rates in 2023. Now, I disagree with Powell and agree with those investors who are forecasting those rate cuts. I think we are going to get rate cuts. And at a minimum, we won't get additional rate increases, but inflation will keep getting worse in 2023, which means even if the Fed stays the same with nominal rates, real rates will be falling. Another question the Fed got was that if it thought it looked like inflation was coming down. And to that, the Fed replied that they were somewhat optimistic that inflation had peaked and was coming down, but they weren't necessarily going to let up on their fight. They wanted more convincing evidence that inflation was lower. And when he was asked about the best way to measure it, if he was focused more on the CPI or the PCE, Powell did mention that he pays attention to the CPI because that's what the public looks at. But the Fed prefers the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, as the best way to measure inflation. Now, of course, the reason the Fed 
prefers that method is because the PCE is the one that understates it the most. That's because it's the most highly manipulated subjectively with hedonics and substitution and all this stuff that allows the government to pretend that prices are rising a lot less than they really are. So the PCE is actually even more dishonest than the CPI, which is obviously why the Fed prefers it. Powell also got a question on the balance sheet and its reduction. And in fact, early in that press conference, Powell mentioned that significant balance sheet reduction was coming. And of course, we've had insignificant balance sheet reduction so far. The balance sheet has barely shrunk below $9 trillion, but apparently the Fed is getting ready to kick the reduction into higher gear. In response to the question of how the reduction was coming along, Powell said it was working fine, but then he admitted that it was off to a slow start. Yes, one of the slowest starts. But he said that in September, they are going to go up to full speed. Yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. I still think that's more of a bluff. And when asked about how long the process would take, first he said a while, and then he kind of defined a while as two to two and a half years to get the balance sheet back down to equilibrium. Now, he didn't state at what level equilibrium would set in. We don't really know. We're almost $9 trillion now. I don't know where Powell thinks the balance sheet is going to go. But of course, if he thinks the process of shrinking the balance sheet is going to take two to two and a half years, he's obviously not going to complete the process because somewhere along the way, the economy will enter recession if it's not already in a recession right now. Now, I think it's in recession And it'll be in a deeper recession during that two, two and a half year period. And we know that the Fed eventually is going to fight that recession with quantitative easing. I mean, that's the main tool really left in its toolkit, given how low interest rates are. Even with the current increases, they still don't have much firepower. Even if the Fed goes up to 3%, 3% to zero is still not a lot of cutting. So most of their stimulus comes from quantitative easing, which is what they're going to do, which means that even if the Fed is sincere in its plan to shrink the balance sheet for the next two, two and a half years, there is no way it's going to stick to that plan. It's going to reverse course and the balance sheet will be making a new high. In fact, I think the balance sheet will finally rise above $9 trillion next year. If it doesn't get above that, before the end of the fourth quarter of this year. Another question Pal got was, did he regret waiting so long to start tightening, to raise rates or shrinking the balance sheet, that the balance sheet kept expanding in the face of all this evidence that inflation was getting worse? And he didn't come right out and say, yes, I regret it. But he basically admitted to regretting it because he said if he had it to do over again, he wouldn't do it again. So if you wouldn't do something again, that obviously means that you realize you made a mistake. And if Powell made a mistake, of course, he would regret having made that mistake. But then he went on to qualify his remarks. He said that even though he wouldn't do it again, implying that what he did was a mistake, he said that it really didn't make a difference. Because he said that it wouldn't have mattered had the Fed started to hike rates a few months sooner in the grand scheme of things. And in that respect, I agree. A few months earlier wouldn't have made a difference. The Fed needed to act years earlier 
not months earlier, the Fed had already done so much damage to the economy with its reckless monetary policy three months before it finally realized that inflation was a problem, that it was already too late, even if it had acted three months sooner, because the genie was already long out of the bottle. See, the problem wasn't that they waited too long to tighten. The problem was that they eased too much in the first place. They never should have done that. And they never should have left the ease on for as long as they did. The balance sheet should have come nowhere near $9 trillion. Interest rates shouldn't have stayed at zero for as long as they did. In fact, they never should have moved them down to zero following the financial crisis of 2008. They never should have done QE1, 2, and 3, let alone QE4. So the Fed's mistakes go way back and three or four months earlier than this hiking cycle began was far too late to do anything about solving the problem. And they're already still dragging their feet and they're doing nothing to encourage Congress to cut government spending, which is really what needs to happen for there to be any success in the battle against inflation. One question that Powell sidestepped because he didn't want to answer was how much weakness in the labor market will the Fed accept before it starts to cut rates? Now, Powell didn't want to answer that question because he doesn't want to let the markets know where his breaking point is, what his tolerance is, because the labor market is, in fact, weakening and it's going to continue to weaken. So Powell doesn't really want to let that cat out of the bag by letting the markets know how high a rate of unemployment will the Fed accept. So Powell sidestepped that answer so as not to have to deal with the consequences because any answer he gave probably would have gotten him into a lot of trouble with somebody. But probably the best dance that Powell made when it comes to dodging questions he didn't want to answer had to do with recession. And in fact, it was almost comical to watch one reporter after another ask the same question and have Powell not answer it. The first person that asked it was Steve Leisman of CNBC, and he asked a two-part question. He asked Powell if he thought the U.S. economy would avoid a recession or enter one, and then he asked Powell to comment on how the Fed might change its policy if the economy were to enter a recession. Now, Powell immediately went off on another tangent and just started talking about the Fed and its commitment to ending inflation. He wanted to stay on message. And when he finished going off on that tangent, Steve Leisman said, okay, that's fine, Mr. Powell, but you didn't answer my question, so let me repeat it. And he asked the identical question again, and then Powell went off on a similar tangent and did not answer the question. Now, maybe Powell thought, okay, I dodged it, I'm done except maybe one or two questions later, another reporter said, hey, I just want to follow up on that question that Steve Leisman asked that you didn't answer. So now Powell was kind of in a box. And so in response to that question, Powell said that he does not believe that the U.S. economy is in a recession now. But he did not answer the question about whether or not he thought the economy might enter a recession later or how the Fed might alter policy. He just reiterated the fact that he does not believe the economy is currently in a recession. Then a third reporter asked him the same question on recession. And for a fourth time, he sidestepped it because Leisman asked him the question twice. 
And so when he got asked it a fourth time, he again reiterated the fact that he does not think the economy is in recession now, but again, refused to make any forecast as to whether or not the economy might be in recession in the future. But what Powell did reiterate is the Fed's commitment to a soft landing. So when asked if the economy was going to go to recession, he said, well, our goal is a soft landing. Now, he admitted that that's going to be difficult to achieve, but that is all he was willing to say. He was not willing to go out on the limb and talk about the possibility of a recession. But I don't think any sitting Fed chairman ever forecast that there might be a recession because these guys are afraid of causing a recession by forecasting one. They don't want to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy because they realize that they have a lot of power, or they think they do, and they think that expectations are very important, right? If people expect a recession, they will alter their spending and savings patterns, investment and employment decisions, and it's the expectation of a recession that might cause a recession. So even if the Fed thinks a recession is coming, it's going to try to pretend that it's not and hope that it can talk the economy out of recession. You know, the same thing applies with inflation. The Fed thinks inflation has a lot to do with expectations. If people expect inflation, well, then workers will demand higher wages to compensate. Businesses will start raising prices, anticipating inflation. Landlords will raise their rents, anticipating inflation. And so the Fed can kind of blame inflation on anticipation instead of accepting responsibility for creating the inflation itself. But then Powell finally got the most important question on recession of the press conference. And for anybody out there who is still operating under the delusion that the Federal Reserve is somehow this independent agency, the answer to this question proves conclusively that that is not the case. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Powell is a member of the Biden administration. And this answer to this question proves that because he read directly from their script. He got the memo, just like everybody else from Janet Yellen on down, that just because you have two quarters of negative GDP growth, that does not mean that it's a recession. In fact, everybody in the Biden administration has now redefined recession. It's not two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. It's just a broad-based decline in the economy, something that we don't have right now. And that is exactly how Powell answered that question. He told the reporter, even if tomorrow's GDP report reveals a second decline in quarterly GDP, that he does not believe that that means the economy is in recession. In fact, Powell went on to say that it's not even his job to decide or declare if the economy is in recession. I mean, it's not. I mean, I thought knowing where the economy is in the business cycle is an important part of his job. Isn't he supposed to know if the economy is in a recession or if it's in an expansion? Or doesn't that 
you know, influence his policy. I mean, he's supposed to have this dual mandate, inflation, employment. Aren't those things influenced by recession? I mean, isn't it the Fed's job to know whether or not the economy is in recession? According to Powell, they don't even care. Doesn't even matter to them whether there's a recession or not. But then he went on to continue to speak the talking points of the Democrats by saying that a recession is not declining GDP. It is a broad-based decline in the economy. And that's what everybody, Janet Yellen started this on Meet the Press on Sunday. And then after Janet Yellen said this, every Democrat that goes on television is saying the exact same thing. And now Powell is saying the exact same thing, proving that even though he was appointed by a Republican, he is a Democrat now because a Democrat is in charge of the White House. And the Fed chairman always aligns himself with the party that has the White House. So he can always be on the same page as the Secretary of the Treasury. And right now, they're on the same idiotic page of redefining what a recession is so they can pretend that we're not in one. I think one of the craziest things about this Orwellian doublespeak on recession is that we don't even have the data yet for Q2. It's possible that the second quarter GDP is going to come out positive, at least initially. The current forecast, I think, is for plus 0.5%. So most people still think that the second quarter is going to be positive. So maybe they should have let the data come out because if it came out positive, well, then they could have said, well, look, we're not in a recession because we only had one quarter of declining GDP, not two. So we're technically not in recession. Now, of course, if they try to point to that now, if we do get a positive number and they try to say, hey, we're not in recession because we got a second quarter and it went positive, well, they look like complete idiots or hypocrites because they just went on and said that it didn't matter what happens to GDP, that we're not in a recession. So then they can't point to GDP as proving that we're not in recession if they said you can't look at GDP as evidence that we are in recession. Again, they're now sticking to the idea that a recession is just a broad-based decline in the economy when that's exactly what we have. I mean, if you think about it, housing is in a big recession. I'll get into some of that data. Autos are in recession. Retail is in a recession. Advertising is in recession. There are all sorts of unrelated parts of the economy that are in recession. I mean, I don't know how much more broad-based the slowdown has to be before the Democrats will accept that it's broad-based. But the fact that they're going out on a limb even in advance of the GDP reports, preparing everybody for the fact that two negative quarters doesn't constitute a recession leads me to believe that they know that the second quarter is going to be negative. So they wanted to get out in front of that news and try to nip it in the bud with this ridiculous redefinition of what constitutes a recession. But I think the biggest mistake was having Jerome Powell read the identical talking points because if the Republicans are smart, they will make a big issue of this at the next congressional testimony and in the elections as well to align Powell with the Democrats and blame both for the recession and inflation and criticize the Fed for its lack of independence and its towing the Biden administration's party line.
Now, despite the fact that Biden is being a good Democrat and is closely aligned himself with the Biden administration, I think some of the Democrats, particularly on the left, are getting ready to turn on him. Elizabeth Warren penned an op-ed that was highly critical of Powell, basically blaming Powell for the recession that is coming or is already here. Warren is accusing Powell of raising rates too much and deliberately causing a recession that is not needed. She was writing about and talking on a lot of news channels about the Biden boom, this great economy that we had, and how Powell ruined it and sent the economy into recession with his aggressive rate hikes that he is using the only tool he has, but it's not the correct tool for the job. She says that higher interest rates cannot solve the inflation problem because the inflation is being caused, according to Warren, by factors over which Biden has no control. Elizabeth Warren blames inflation on Putin. She blames inflation on the pandemic and the supply shortages that have been caused by the pandemic. And then, of course, she blames inflation on greedy corporations who have suddenly discovered their greed and are now gouging their customers uh, with much higher prices. And so, according to Elizabeth Warren, the way we solve the inflation problem is to be more aggressive with antitrust in breaking up these corporations. She needs, we need to sell more oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is already rapidly being depleted. She thinks we need bigger government so that somehow we can stimulate investment. Everything, of course, that Elizabeth Warren wants to do will make the problem worse. But it's clear that Powell is being set up as the fall guy. For now, it's just the left wing of the Democratic Party. But I think as the economy worsens and inflation fails to go away, the entire Democratic Party is going to have to run against the Fed as much as they're going to be running against the Republicans. Now, I think the same thing is going to happen with the Republicans. They're going to also be blaming the Fed for problems, but they're going to be blaming the Democrats as well. So I think the Fed is going to be in the crosshairs of both parties, and that is going to be particularly dangerous, not only for the institution, but for its reputation and its independence, which should already have been called into question. But I think the Fed is going to be very damaged, not only by the fact that it got so much wrong and that the recession is going to be worse and inflation is going to be worse, but because it's going to have no friends and it's going to be blamed by both parties. Now, I agree the Fed's to blame, but it won't be for the reasons that most of its critics allege. One of the best feelings you can have as an entrepreneur is building a team that's every bit as excited about your business as you are. But the key to making that a reality is building a team that also has the skills to get the job done. And if you want to find those people faster, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending countless hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed 
Indeed is a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide who already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. What I like best about Indeed is how much it simplifies the hiring process. And no other job site takes care of you like Indeed. Because with Indeed, you only have to pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed puts you in control of what you pay. You set your must-have job requirements and only pay for the applications who meet them. There's a transparent flat fee per application and you can pause your job posting whenever you want. And best of all, Indeed is doing something that no other job site has done before. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job description. So visit Indeed.com slash Peter today to start hiring right now. Just go to Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. I want to circle back to some of the economic data that came out so far this week. Earlier in the week, we got the Chicago Fed National Activity Index for June, and that index was supposed to come out at plus 0.5. Instead, it plunged to minus 0.19. And in fact, the prior month, which was originally reported as plus 0.1, that was revised to minus 0.19. So a pretty big miss there. Also, the Dallas Fed Manufacturing Survey, which was supposed to come out at minus 12, came out at minus 22.6, and that was even a bigger drop than the minus 17.7 in the prior month. So analysts were expecting a smaller drop than the prior month. Instead, we got a larger drop. Consumer confidence for July also came out below estimates. The expectation was for 96.8, and that would have been a decline from the 98.7 from June. Well, the June number was revised down to 98.4, and the July number came out even lower than expected at 95.7. But some of the weakest numbers we got related to the housing market, we got new home sales for June. The consensus was for an annualized rate of 664,000, and that would have been a pretty big decline from the 696,000 in the prior month. Well, the prior month was revised down to 642,000, and June came out at 590,000, way below estimates. In fact, the range of estimates went from 620,000 to 680,000, and we came in well below the lower range of expectations. We also got the pending home sale index for June. That was supposed to decline by 1%. Instead, it declined by 8.6%, a much bigger drop than expected. In fact, again, they revised down the prior month from up 07 to up 04 
So not only did we drop much more than expected, but we fell from a lower level. In fact, the range of estimates went from minus 0.3 to minus 2.1, basically four times as bad as people thought. And the home index went from 99.9 in the prior month, actually downwardly revised to 99.6, and it plunged all the way down to 91. Now, it was weak data like that that had led me to believe that when the Atlanta Fed revised its Q2 forecast for the final time today, that it was going to reduce its forecast maybe to minus 2%. It stood at minus 1.6. But then we got two pieces of stronger economic data today that actually caused the Atlanta Fed to go the other way and increase its number from minus 1.6 to minus 1.2. The big news was the durable goods orders. They were supposed to come out at minus 0.5, and instead we got a positive 1.9%. That was more than double the high range of the estimate, which was plus 0.8. The low range was minus 2.5, and they even slightly revised upward the prior month from up 0.7 to up 0.8. X transportation, the revision went the other way from up 0.7 to up 0.5, but there was a small beat. The consensus was for up 0.2, we were up 0.3, and the core capital goods, which was supposed to increase by just 0.2, increased by 0.5. And so I think this had a positive effect on GDP for the second quarter. Now, this big jump in durable goods orders doesn't actually mean that there was a big increase in the quantity of durable goods ordered. I think it all has to do with prices going up. Durable goods are seeing huge price increases. So it's not that we have more orders for durable goods. We probably have fewer orders. It's just those orders are for more money because the price of the goods that people are buying has gone up so much that it's impacting the numbers. So this report doesn't really reflect a strong economy, it reflects strong inflation. Now, the other data point that came out that I think caused the Atlanta Fed to increase its estimate was the trade deficit for June. That is the final month of the second quarter. And it was supposed to come out at minus 103.2 billion. And instead, it came out at just minus 98.2 billion. That was a much smaller deficit than the markets had expected. The range of estimates was from a low of 101.4 billion to a high of 110 billion. Now, remember, the reason that these numbers are so large is because this is just the trade deficit in goods, merchandise. It doesn't include the surplus that we have in services that offsets this. But this number factors into GDP. If you want to know how the trade deficit came out smaller, imports actually fell by 0.5%. Now, again, this is not adjusted for inflation. So I'm sure the volume of imports fell a lot more than 0.5% because we know that the price of imports is going up. So if imports overall went down, despite the fact that we're paying more 
for those imports. Well, we know that the volume really went down. Exports were up 2.5%, but again, a lot of that is prices. We know year over year, export prices are up better than 18%. So a lot of the increase in exports is not because we're exporting more. It's just because we're charging more for the stuff that we are exporting. But to me, the fact that imports are going down in real terms is more evidence of a weak economy, meaning that the consumer is too weak to spend. Now, of course, this has been a bubble economy powered by consumers going into debt and spending. But with prices rising so much, they no longer have the ability to maintain that momentum. And so the air is coming out of the bubble. In fact, Walmart confirmed the weakness in the consumer when it warned on profits, causing its stock to drop 8% in one day. What Walmart said is that its customers are spending too much money on food and not enough money on higher margin goods, and that's why their profits are falling. Sales may be going up, but because their customers are spending all that money on food, they don't have enough left over to buy the items where Walmart makes a better profit. In fact, in many ways, they could be luring people into their stores with cheaper food. They don't mark the food up that much. They know they're going to make money on the other products that they buy while they're there doing their grocery shopping. Now, that obviously pisses off traditional grocery stores or supermarkets that don't have these other products and just rely on what they can make selling food. They now have to compete with Walmart that is willing to underprice its food to make money someplace else. Well, maybe that strategy isn't going to work anymore. This might force Walmart to charge even higher prices on food if food is where it's going to make its money because it's not making it someplace else. That's going to be a relief for Walmart's competitors. All of this means that food prices, which are already way up, are going to be going even higher if it's the only way that Walmart can make a profit. But if Walmart is forced to charge a market price for its food, it can no longer subsidize food with other higher margin items. That's going to take all the pressure off their competition, who will then be freer to raise prices for the food that they're selling. Of course, all of this is what I predicted. I said many times on my podcast that this was exactly what was going to happen, and now it's playing out the way I scripted it. We also had other corporate news confirming weakness. Shopify not only missed on earnings, but the day before announced that it was going to be laying off 10% of its workforce. Again, that's another prediction I made that a lot of these companies are going to be laying off their workers and the layoffs are just getting started. Sherman Williams came out with earnings this morning, a big miss. The stock was down 12% in the pre-market. I think it only ended up down about 9% at the end of the day. But the problem with Sherman Williams is twofold. The cost of paint is going up. Inflation is driving up the cost. They have to raise prices. But housing is in recession. And so a lot of the paint is being bought by home builders or people buying and remodeling their houses. But because of these horrific housing numbers that I already went over, demand is down. Yes, home prices are way up, about 20% year over year, but not nearly as many homes are turning over. And it's when you buy a new home that you decide to repaint the home because you don't like the colors that the previous owners picked. Or when you're building a brand new house, of course, you have to paint everything because nothing's been painted. But all this is slowing down, and that is bad news 
for Sherman Williams. And there's a lot of other companies that are going to be dealing with this problem. You know, Meta, formerly Facebook, came out with its earnings today after the bell, and it was another miss on revenue, on profits. In fact, this was the first quarter in the history of Meta where you had a decline in revenue. Now, there were some companies that rallied today. Despite an earnings miss, Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, actually rallied. We had a rally in Microsoft. I think its earnings were okay. Some other companies came out with earnings that beat lowered expectations. And that was part of the reason that we had a big rally in the stock market. The Dow rose 436 points, almost 1.4%. The S&P rose by 2.6%. And the NASDAQ gained 3.85%. Big moves all around. Russell 2000 up 2.4%. In fact, not only did stocks rally today, everything rallied. And I think more important then the earnings maybe not being as bad as the markets had been bracing for. I think the real catalyst was Powell being more dovish because even though we got this 75 basis point rate hike, Powell made it clear that the Fed is no longer on autopilot, that they are data dependent. And now the data is more important than ever. And considering how weak the data is, the odds are the Fed is very close to the end of this tightening cycle. And that means it's also closer to the beginning of the next easing cycle. And that's why everything went up. Bonds went up today. The yield curve steepened. You had a much bigger rise in the five-year and the 10-year than you did in the 30-year, which was pretty flat. You had a rise in precious metals today, about a 2.5% gain in the price of silver. Gold, not as big a percentage move, but up about 17, 18 bucks, closed at 17.36. The resistance is about 17.40. That was the high a couple of days ago. We sold off from that. So I think we got to get above 17.40 and then gold could make another run back at 1,800. But as I said on a prior podcast, I kind of went out on the limb and said I thought the gold price had bottomed when it got to around 1680 or below that one day, and it's looking more like that call was correct. Also, foreign currencies had a big rally today. The dollar index tanked by 0.725. We closed at 106.4. Again, the dollar is looking more and more like the top may be in. Again, I'm waiting for the dollar index to close below 105 to have more conviction in that forecast. But looking at the charts, I think that is what is more likely than not to happen. Mining stocks also had a good day today. The junior miners did better than the seniors. The GDXJ was up 3.7%, while the GDX was only up 1.7%. The GDX is still suffering from the Newmont earning miss from the other day. Newmont down another 1.15% today. Newmont fell by 14% on Monday following the release of its earnings, which missed estimates. Now, I think the decline was a huge overreaction to the size of the miss. In fact, Newmont shares had already been falling the week before on anticipation of weak earnings. And then we got weak earnings and the stock fell even more. Now, the reason for the miss was twofold. 
The most significant one being rising costs. The cost of mining went up and therefore the profits on each ounce of gold that they mine were less than expected. And they didn't mine quite as much gold as the markets were expecting because supply chain reductions were impeding their ability to produce. Now, that's not bad news over the long run because it means that the gold is still in the ground. So any gold that Newmont didn't produce this quarter, well, is extra gold that can be produced in future quarters. Newmont still owns the gold. They just didn't get it out of the ground soon enough. But also, I think the fact that costs went up is a short-term thing because eventually prices of gold are going to go way up and it's going to more than offset the increase in costs. Investors don't think that. If you look at investor expectations for the price of gold two or three years in the future, they still think gold's going to be around 1800 In other words, they think there's going to be no gain really in the price of gold. Well, that's crazy. Gold prices are going to go much higher. It's just that investors don't understand that. In fact, as far as investors are concerned, all news is bad news when it comes to gold. And I've talked about this, how gold stocks are the ironic victims of inflation. Inflation is driving up the cost of mining, but because investors don't think inflation is a problem because they think the Fed is going to solve it, they are not baking that inflation into the gold price. And so the price of gold, at least for now, is not keeping pace with the cost of mining it. In fact, Whenever we get stronger economic data, investors think, well, the Fed's going to be more aggressive and these rate hikes are going to kill inflation. So no reason to buy gold, even less reason to buy gold stocks. On the other hand, when we get weak economic data, investors think, well, recession is going to kill inflation. After all, inflation is caused by a strong economy. And when the economy weakens, inflation goes away. So there's no reason to buy gold when recession is going to kill inflation. So investors have got it wrong twice. Inflation is not going to get killed by the Fed, and it's not going to get killed by recession. It's the economy that's going to get killed. It's going to die as a result of the combination of rate hikes and inflation. And it's not the real economy that's dying. It's this bubble economy that's dying. But inflation is not only going to live on, it's actually going to get stronger. And that's why gold and especially these gold mining stocks are an incredible bargain right now. You know, when I talk about Newmont Mining, I'm not making a specific recommendation to buy that stock because I don't give individual stock recommendations on the podcast for FINRA reasons. I discuss stocks as an example. But one recommendation that I do make is my mutual fund, the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund. And I think the best way for my audience to participate in what I believe is going to be an incredible bull market in mining stocks is through the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund managed by Adrian Day. It's better to let Adrian Day pick your stocks for you rather than picking them yourself. I think he's the best stock picker in the mining sector. He's certainly been doing it the longest. Very few people have stuck it out as long as he did. So he knows these companies. He knows the management teams. He knows the projects. And maybe even more important than knowing which stocks to buy, it's which stocks not to buy. Because that's where a lot of people lose money in the junior mining sector is they buy the wrong stocks and they lose a bunch of money even though the gold price goes up and the sector goes up. So I think Adrian 
will minimize the chances of that happening. Now, of course, don't buy my gold fund unless you have a high risk tolerance. Mining stocks are not for the faint of heart. This is risky business. So don't put any money into the Euro-Pacific gold fund that you're not prepared to lose. Now, I don't think the fund is going to go to zero. That's a very low probability. These mining stocks are not going to go bankrupt. But there is a high possibility that you could lose money and you could lose money very quickly. But the trade-off is that you can also make money very quickly. The key is to relate the downside risk to the upside potential. And that's where I think the story is incredible because I think the upside potential, especially from here, is so enormous that it dwarfs the downside risk. And so if you are a speculator, this is the time to really place a big bet because the upside is so skewed relative to the downside that this is one of those times where your big bets can really pay off. And therefore, if you have the tolerance, you should take advantage of the opportunity. And don't forget, before you buy, make sure to read the prospectus. And last and certainly least, Even Bitcoin had a big rally today. In fact, it got up around 23,000. It traded below 21,000 yesterday briefly. So you're talking about a 10% rise in Bitcoin. Again, on the idea that the Fed is reaching the end of the tightening cycle, we're getting close to another easing cycle. In theory, this is supposed to be bullish for Bitcoin. In reality, I don't think it will be bullish. I think you still have people driving this narrative that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, that it's a hedge against a weak dollar, and that when the Fed starts easing again, it's going to be back to the big rally, back to the moon. I think the bull market is over in crypto. Any rally is a selling opportunity. I don't think Bitcoin is going to work out in the next easing cycle the way it worked out in the past easing cycle. I think now is the time for gold to shine. Bitcoin's moment in the sun is over. And I think anybody who's still holding should look for any opportunity to sell because I think the next decline is going to take Bitcoin sub 10,000. I think we're going to get a lot of margin call related liquidation as a result of that decline. Now, we may have another rally. I'm sure it'll get back above 10,000 before the next drop. But I think right now when it comes to Bitcoin, it's a race for the exits. I think the big money, the whales have been dumping and they're going to continue to put pressure on this market. You still have some of these hodlers that are diehards and haven't sold. They're going to be the bag holders. But I think a lot of the really dumb money that got in late over the last couple of years, I think they're done. I think that money's not coming in anymore. The people who are buying because the athletes and the entertainers are on Instagram touting coins, the NFT mania. I think the institutional foray into crypto is over. I think all the institutions that were thinking about getting in but didn't think they dodged a bullet and they want no part of it. I think those institutions that did get sucker in regret having done it. So I just don't see where the momentum comes to keep this Ponzi going, this pyramid, this chain letter. It's run out of chain. A blockchain letter doesn't work any better than a chain letter that you get through the mail. So the party is over. Get out. This is the end, I think, of Bitcoin and crypto. But I think it's really the beginning of the movement out of fool's gold into real gold. And I hope a lot of people that were temporarily led astray into thinking that they were buying digital gold 
when they bought Bitcoin, when they realized they got suckered into fool's gold, hopefully they get out and they still have enough money left over to buy some real gold while they can still afford it. Thank you.